Good evening, brothers and sisters. Keeping in the theme of uh, sinful temptation that we heard from PJ this morning, tonight we'll be looking at the Old Testament in Genesis and looking at sinful thoughts in the days leading up to the time of the flood. So before we get any further in tonight's passage, let's take a moment to lift a word of prayer. Pray with me now. Father God, we pray that you would open our ears to hear and incline our hearts to your word as we meditate on Genesis tonight. May our gospel truths be sweet to our souls that we may delight in them and love you all the more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So back in May, I interviewed um, in a firm in Los Angeles for a new job. A month went by, and I had a first-round interview uh, with HR, turned in my Excel modeling tests and our conversation for a second round, and then finally a, a third round with two portfolio managers. Uh, needless to say, I desired the job, and it would have been a step up in my career, and when I was told that they were moving on to new candidates the next day, the sting of rejection felt bitter. Having failed to successfully secure the job, I blamed God for blocking my path forward. Like many of us who know what it's like to not get what we want, I thought to myself, God, I think you got this one wrong. I don't understand what you're doing. When life takes a wrong turn, we often turn from God. And whether it's a rejection or a relationship that's gone wrong or anything else that falls off from life's due course, the thoughts of our heart are prone to wander and turn against God. Friends, this is much of uh, what Genesis 6 is about today, and it's really the sinful thoughts of man's heart turning from God. While you're turning there in your Bibles to Genesis 6, which is found on page 5 in front of you, I'll provide some brief context on where we're at. We're picking up with, uh, with God flooding the earth, an account that many of us are familiar with, but one that we shouldn't grow too comfortable with. And here we see in Genesis 6 the increasing progression of corruption on the earth. From Cain to wicked Lamech, humanity is going from bad to worse. And although we see a glimpse of hope in Enoch, wickedness in the hearts of men is only growing worse. And because God's righteous, God determines to blot out humanity from the face of the earth. And in the midst of judgment, what we actually see is a sweetness of his favor towards his people. If you're taking notes, the two points in Genesis 6 are man's incurable nature and two, God's sweet favor. That's Point number one, man's incurable nature, and number two, God's sweet favor. So follow along now as I read from Genesis 6, uh, 1 through 8. That's going to be Genesis 6, 1 through 8. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. When man began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the, the men of renown. And tonight's verse is this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, 
man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I'm sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, in verses 1 through 4 here, we see evidences of increasing corruption on the earth. Verse 2, we see the sons of God seeing the daughters of men as attractive and taking or took as their wives any as they chose. And while there's some debate about who the sons of God are referring to, we believe it to mean that they're the sons of Seth, God's covenanted people from the line of Adam and Eve who end up committing sin and marrying unbelievers, the daughters of man that are coming from the line of Cain. And so we see here there's clear wickedness and progressing corruption in the union of God's people, his righteous seed, with those who are ungodly. And then verse 3, we see what the Lord that's numbering man's days from 120 years, the days at which Moses died in Deuteronomy 34.7, um, from the days of Adam, whose life lasted 930 years. And then lastly, the most interesting part, perhaps, is from verse 4, the Nephilim, or you'll see in the footnotes, they're giants who are on the earth. And we're unsure if these are the giants similar to Philippians and Numbers or fallen angels, but, and not much else is said, uh, and that's precisely because the point of them is that they contributed to violence and increasing corruption that plagued the earth. So let's get to our first point of today's message, which is point number one, man's incurable nature. It's a man's incurable nature. Brothers and sisters, did you catch what was said in verse 5 here? Let's look at verse 5. Here is a depressing summary of God's view of mankind. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's one of the clearest summaries in the Bible of man's total depravity, our entire selves, entire being dedicated to only evil. Notice that as a result of the fall from Adam and Eve, nothing was untouched by sin. Not even 0.0000001% of good was found in man's souls. Really, the image here depicted is one of dead men walking. It's lifeless corpses that are treading the earth with no lifeline to reverse the stain of guilt. No salvation to be found through their own devices but rather just a guaranteed death certificate with their name written on it and a willful determination to completely and continually reject God. In the second half of the verse, we read, every intention of the thoughts of the heart was evil. If we look closer, the text is saying that from the moment a thought was born, the intention behind the thought was one of wickedness. Can you imagine what that's like? All of our intentions for every thought just incurably poisoned. Any mixture of good desires continually resisted so that only evil desires would be the ones that prevail. In Hebrew, the term describes an impulse in us that's bent towards evil. It's an evil inclination that seduces a person away from good godly desires, a devil in our hearts that's causing us to love and to live in evil. And really, the truth is that that describes all of us here today for sitting down, and even the one who's standing before you. That apart from Christ and to, uh, accepting Christ in our lives, our general disposition is bent towards evil. And while the text in Genesis is talking about ungodliness um, and evil men in the early days after the fall of Adam and Eve and before God's judgment and the flood, the truth is for Christians who are living in Christ, the text still applies to us. We know what it's like to have our thoughts motivated by evil intentions. 
We know what it's like to have our thoughts motivated by evil intentions. Just consider your thoughts this past week. Sinful anger to your spouse when the house is a mess. Why is the trash not taken out when she's home all day? Why are the dishes not done when I told them to do it 20 minutes ago? Point is, in our homes, we allow our thought life to be corrupted by self-centered desires. We're so easily intent to find fault in our spouses, and we make assumptions about how they live, instead of allowing our thoughts to be marked by grace and kindness. What else is it like to have the intentions of our thought be evil? We justify sinful temptation. For kids, we justify stealing our parents' money. We want junk food. It only costs $10. What's that matter to our parents? For adults, we justify stealing time at work. I've had such a hard time at work. Um, I need this break. I deserve it. I earned it. Again, another instance of our thoughts motivated by evil intentions, self-centered desires. Or in our private lives, we justify giving in to temptations, sinful temptations of lust. It's okay this one time. I'm stressed. Again, our thoughts motivated by evil intentions led by sinful, self-centered desires. For honest, many of us are just too good at deceiving ourselves into giving in to the temptations of sin. Dishonesty. How many of us have spewn half-truths and lies to hide the evil spirits in our hearts? We tell our wives they look great in that new outfit when we actually don't care. <laughs> or we tell our parents we love them when in reality we think to ourselves, how much of a burden they are. Sometimes we wish we were born into a less broken family. Again, thoughts of our hearts, motivated by evil intentions, self-centered desires. Christians, see here that the text is addressing areas in your life where the intentions of the thoughts of your hearts are one that are characterized by evil. Let's move on. In light of the evil that's hidden in our hearts, what's the Christian response? What are we to do? In light of this, well, we know in James 1 that um, says that God is not the cause of sin, but human beings own evil desire as its source. And James is pointing exactly to the kind of evil desires that we see in Genesis 6. But what we find in James is actually an answer to how Christians are to live in light of this condition. We are to resist our evil desires, resist those evil thoughts and replace them with ones that are good. James 1.21 says that we are to get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Did you catch what was said there? To resist these evil inclinations, we must be implanted by God's saving word. It's like a ballast that adds weight at the bottom of the boat, acting as a counterbalance to some of the waves that are pushing to the side. God's word, like the ballast, provides stability. Instead of being tossed by the evil intentions of our thoughts and our desires, we must be active to seek his word that stabilizes and fight against the kind of double-mindedness that creates instability. Brothers and sisters, what does the ballast of God's word look like for you? Is it too loosely put in place? Or is it sturdy, weighty, securely fixed in, not giving in to any budge for the perfection of your faith? Point number two is God's sweet favor. It's God's sweet favor. Let's look back at our passage tonight. When I talk about God's sweet favor, I want us to see how his favor towards his people is sweetened by his love for us. How in the midst of our incurable stain of sin and complete rejection of him, God in his love can regret and he can grieve. 
picture of the flood depicts sinners in the hands of an angry God. Genesis 6 shows us there's more to that. Specifically how God's wrath not only signifies his detestation of sin, but his love towards his people. An ultimately redemptive plan to create a pathway for our pardon in Christ. Let's look at verse 6 here. It says, the Lord regretted. The Lord regretted. Now, many of us might stumble on a verse like this and ask of ourselves, how can an all-powerful, all-sovereign God regret something that he did in the past? Does that mean God was unable to foresee what was uh, going to happen and his decision might be a bad one, like making an investment before the market crashes? No, the idea here is that the Lord, when the Lord regrets, he feels grief over what he has done. He feels sadness in his heart for what has happened, not in the sense that he's going to redo what has already been done, but he approves and he affirms that what he did is right. And yet at the same exact time, he still feels the emotional pain of what had to be done. If you've ever had to give bitter medicine to a patient to cure an illness, or you had to discipline your child, you know exactly what it's like to both stand by what you had to do and still feel regret for what had to be done. Moving on to uh, more verse six here, the text says it grieved him to his heart. So when we think about the Lord grieving in his heart, what is, what is God grieving over? Well, he's grieving over the wickedness of man. And in fact, it's precisely the grieving of the Lord that signifies the Lord's detestation of sin. But if we step back, grief here takes on multiple meanings. For grief is a sweet combination of both God's righteous anger and his love for his people. It's anger against, righteous anger against the sins of men, but all the gall is taken from it. The Lord's love sweetens his anger and turns the pointed edge not against the sinner, his people, but against the offense, the sin. Yes, God still hates sin, but God loves his people. So see here in Genesis that the grief is one that is coded in God's love for his people. Finally, and quickly, we'll turn to Noah, in whom the Lord found favor. Verse 8 says there that Noah found favor in the Lord. And it's sentences like these in the Old Testament that should lift us up to read about God's favor in an undeserving people, a person. As if God would pronounce Noah and his family innocent in a court of law, Noah was certainly not immune from having every evil thought in his heart, yet he would become the heir of righteousness. What more evidence is there of God's favor that Noah would be a vessel in which God would redeem an unredeeming people, an undeserving people? Praise God for Noah, who'd find no rational reason for him to build an enormous boat. And despite all evidence against what God tells him, as it didn't look like it was going to rain, doesn't look like there's a flood that's going to come, Noah still faithfully obeys God's command. God's favor sweetened by his love for his people. Besides Noah, through whom God would use to save an undeserving people, The sweetest gift we receive from God representing his love for us is his son, Christ. While the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great, in Christ the Lord saw the exact opposite. Scripture tells us in Matthew 3.17, This is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. Man, God saw every inclination of evil in our hearts. In Christ, God saw perfection, pure, undefiled perfection. There's only complete, total depravity in man. In Christ, there's only righteousness to be found. And we read in today's uh, church catechism in, in the morning, in 36, it said, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God. And, 30, and 37 says that God graciously imputes Christ's righteousness to us 
as if it were our own and will remember our sins no more. That God the Father made a son who had no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. For those found in Christ, the Lord looks at us not with an intense detestation of our sin, but an intense affection and love as he loves his son. Friends, if you're here with us today and you're not a believer in the work of Christ, what you heard about the increasing corruption and stain of sin as recorded in Genesis is exactly the condition of your heart today. The gospel message is this. We are evil in our hearts. It's by our nature that we're expelled from God's presence, and it's impossible for us to enter the kingdom of God. The holy gates, they're shut, closed. Punishment is our just desert, but God created the entrance. He acted to find a pathway for our pardon, and while we were just dead bodies, lifeless corpses, walking the earth, only imaginations of evil in our thoughts and wickedness in our hearts, Christ nailed our sins on the cross. He died on the tree so that all those who believe in him would be able to enter through the heavenly gates to union with the Father. Through his death, God would see in place of the evil in the thoughts of our heart the sweet purity of his Son. So I urge you today to trust in the saving work of Christ and repent of your sin. Now, to our church family who's here with us today in the room, I want to conclude by thanking you um, for clinging on to Christ. What does that look like? Well, it looks like resisting sinful temptations, holding tightly onto Christ's word as the ballast of your life, enjoying and sharing the sweetness of God's favor and the burdens that he has placed upon you. And while all of you now know that by the grace of God, I'll be moving to New York next week for a new job, I want to take the time to recognize and praise God for Bethany Baptist. Thank you to PJ for pastoring, reminding me that I am a burden, and it's good to share burdens with members. Thank you to John and June and Ross and Jabez and Ryan, Daniel, those here and not here with us, for studying together God's word holding me accountable for wicked sins and thoughts in my heart. For the Lees, the Valencias, Pastorses, and many more for sharing your life, children, and meals together. Beyond daily living out what it means to be a family in Christ and offering your friendship in the past few years, I praise God for Bethany's Baptist faithfulness. And I hope that God and that you would continue to cling to Christ and, and not turn from God, that you would continue to count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth that is knowing his son, Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks for today's meditations on our total depravity apart from you and the saving work of your son, Christ, on the tree. Pray that you make the gospel truth of Christ's sacrifice sweet to us this week, that we may live in accordance to your word. In your son's name we pray. Amen.